just want to say welcome again. If this is your first time with us, um, we are going through the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 2 and 3. Um, so you can turn to chapter 3 today, all the way near the end of your Bible. The reason that we're doing that is because in these two chapters, uh, Jesus writes seven letters to seven different churches. Um, real, actual, flesh and blood, uh, brick and mortar, local churches. And so as we begin as a church, we want to ask the question, what does Jesus want his church to look like? What is a, what is a faithful and successful church according to Jesus? We don't want to make that answer up on our own. Uh, so we go here and we see what Jesus has to say, what he encourages and what he corrects. So now we're going to be in Philadelphia um, today as we look through this, um, verses 7 all the way through 13. Um, but right before uh, we dig into that, I just want to say um, that as we um, go through this today, um, I'm gonna, we're going to read the text, and then I'm going to give you like a quick summary of what I believe um, the whole, this whole thread is kind of running around. This is kind of a, a letter that'll be odd, unless I think we kind of have in our minds a central theme um, of perseverance and um, adoption going on in here. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, perseverance and adoption. Now, as we dig in here, I'd love um, for you to stand uh, with me um, as we read this together. We stand out of reverence for God's Word, so if you're able, please stand as we read um, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are faithful to your word. Lord, we, we recognize today that your thoughts are above our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways, and yet you've revealed yourself to us. And we pray today that as we read your word, that we would... Um, be convicted by it in every way that we need to be convicted. We would be comforted by it, by any of us, and in every way that we need comfort and strengthening this morning. Lord, we are thankful for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given us himself and saved us from our own sin. And we give thanks in his name today. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, as we gather around this word today, there's four uh, points I'd want us to kind of go through, or an outline today, if you like outlines, here is what I have for you. Um, the first is title, the title of this letter, and then the power, trouble, and promise. So we'll flip between those two, uh, or those four things, title, power, trouble, and promise. 
Now, to explain um, what I believe are the, the main um, points of this text, because I think it helps us kind of understand it as we go through it verse by verse, we go to this town of Philadelphia, this city. It's not a huge church, but it is a pretty notable town. It's an old city. Um, it's pretty historic. Um, and in this city, again, there's a smaller but a faithful church. That's one group of characters that you have. The other group of characters, the main characters that you have, are a, a heavy presence of ethnic um, Jews in the area. Not just ethnic, but religious Jews that live in this city. And this group of Jews uh, persecutes and um, tests this church of Christians regularly. So they are um, doing what they can to make it difficult for the Christians in this city to be Christians. That's what they're trying to do. And obviously the city as a whole does not worship God. Um, the city as a whole is a pagan city um, with these two groups inside of it. So as we see these two uh, main groups going on, what Jesus wants to say to the Christians is two main things. He wants to help them to persevere and in order to help them persevere, he's going to um, reinforce over and over again the fact that he has adopted them as his children. So this perseverance is the, the call to this church, but the comfort to this church is adoption. That's what we're going to see throughout this whole thing. Now in the first verse here, in verse 7, um, we see that Jesus identifies himself in this way. He says, the one who is the holy one, the true one, and the one who has the key of David. He's emphasizing to them three parts of his character. First of all, that he is holy, meaning that God, um, Jesus himself being God, is the Holy One of Israel. He is um, Yahweh. He is the one who was before time began, and he is without any sin, without any imperfection, without any impurity of any kind. He's absolutely perfect and um, timeless. He is absolutely eternal and the Holy One of Israel. Next up, he is the true one, meaning that his word to them is true. Everything he says is faithful. Nothing that he says is wrong. Nothing that he says can be taken back by somebody else. He is true. And so the promises that he makes to this church, they can depend on. And the promises that he makes to us, we can depend on. Um, and lastly, he's the one who holds the key of David, meaning that Jesus, not some human somewhere, but Jesus is the one who holds the keys to the kingdom of God. He's the one that has taken control of history, specifically uh, the history and future of his people. As Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases, and no one can stay his hand. That's what Jesus is trying to say to them, so that whenever he gives them these promises and these commands, they can depend that it's true. They can trust that it's true, and not just that it's true, but that it matters. When the God of all the universe says something to you, then it matters. And his word is the only thing that matters. That's the title of this letter. But the first thing that he goes into is he encourages this church for the power that he sees in them. He says in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. We'll pause right there for a second. Um, Jesus has opened the door of this church into the presence of God. That's what he's saying to them. Even though there's people in the city, right, the Jewish people in the city are telling the Christians, you're not God's people, we are. We're the ones accepted in his presence. We're the ones welcomed in, not you guys. Jesus says to this church, no, 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 I've opened the door to you. I've opened the door to the kingdom and God's presence to you. 
so that even though people want to cast them out of God's presence, nobody can. What Jesus opens, no one can shut. And this door was opened to them by the cross, right? That's, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he literally says, I am the door. I am the way to the Father. And so Jesus is reminding them that he is the way. He is how they are acceptable to God. He's how they're brought into the presence of God. And this is the same news that you and I get to tell to everyone that we can talk to, is that there is a way to God. There is an acceptable way. There is a a way to be reconciled to Him. Yes, we are all lost in sin, but there's a way to God. Not a way that is opened by our own strength and our own power, our own um, religiousness, our own religious works and our own good deeds. It's a way that's opened by the cross that Jesus bled on and died on. It's a way that's opened by the fact that he went into the tomb and came back. And now at the same time, this language also reminds us of um, language that's used throughout the New Testament. So maybe this came to your mind. Um, if you think of a verse like 1 Corinthians 16 um, and verse 9, Paul says, um, he's talking about the city of Corinth, and he says, And a wide open door for effective ministry is right in front of me. But, or he says, and there are many adversaries. That's the verse in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. There's a wide door for ministry. There's opportunity to preach the gospel here. And there are many adversaries. I love that verse because it reminds us that both opportunity and difficulty can exist at the exact same time in the exact same place. I mean, is that... Does anybody amen to that? Like, has anybody seen that in their life before? That both opportunity and difficulty, especially in the kingdom of God, those things exist right alongside each other. And so that is what Jesus is reminding to these people. I've opened the door to you through the cross where I shed my blood. I've welcomed you in, and I also have set you out to go and tell the world. And it's a reminder to us that Even though opposition has been going on since the very first century, the kingdom of God has continued to go forward. Just because we're in 2022 does not mean that even though there's opposition now, we often think like, oh my goodness, we're in a culture that doesn't love Christ. It's like, yeah, duh. Like that's that's where we've like always been as the people of God. That's where we've always been. It's not a surprise that all of a sudden there's opposition to God's word and to the gospel. That's not a surprise. It doesn't mean that the effective door of ministry has closed just because there are people who don't like it. Not at all. And one thing that's amazing as Christ goes forward is here is he, he tells them that they have little power, which doesn't sound very encouraging, right? If you read this letter and God wants to affirm to you that you have little strength, that doesn't initially sound all that encouraging, but it's actually one of my favorite phrases of this letter. Jesus says in verse 8, I know you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is a church that probably of any of the letters that we'll study, this church gets the most encouragement without any rebuke from Jesus. Like this church is um, perhaps Christ's favorite church that he writes a letter to. They are praised um, completely universally. There's not an ounce of correction in this letter yet they have little strength. So why does Jesus praise them? He doesn't praise them because they're significant, because they're powerful, because they're mighty, because they're flashy, because they seem to be doing uh, so well from an earthly point of view. 
Instead, he praises them because even with their lack of strength, they've kept his word, they've not denied his name. They've held on to his teaching, they've not denied his name. It's encouraging for us as a church and for us as people that God accepts little strength from his children. Christ accepts little strength from his children. Not just accepts, honestly, God celebrates little strength from his children. We often don't want to be that child of little strength, but that's what God accepts and welcomes. That's who he brings in. That's who he uses. So for us as a church, as a brand new church plant, it's really easy for us to begin to think that our goal is to get to some level of strength, right? Like a certain number of people in the room, a certain number um, or a certain level of professionalism when it comes to preaching or music or kids ministry or uh, parking lot attendance, whatever it may be. But the real goal for us is not to achieve some level of strength. That's not how we're going to be useful to God. And we want to be useful to God. We don't want to be just another church on another street corner in a part of town. We want to actually tell people about Christ. We want to actually make the kingdom of Jesus more visible right here where we live. And to do that, it's not going to depend at all on our own strength. And if we start to think that we are strong, we are going to start to be less effective. We have to remember that God puts his treasure in jars, of, in jars of clay, right? That God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. He uses the weak things to shame the strong. God is um, the one who uses people who are weak, and that's how they become strong, right? Second Corinthians, Paul says, when I am weak and I lean on Christ, then I am strong. God uses the people who take up their cross even when they're tired of taking it up. Even when we're barely strong enough to lift it up, we continue to take up the cross, God uses people who feel the thorns in their side. God uses people who feel the thorns in the flesh because that drives us to depend on him more. But not just for us corporately as a church, but for us individually. I'll talk to you for a minute here. Do you ever feel like you have little strength? Do you ever feel like you have just the tiniest, weakest amount of strength left? And because you feel like you're not very strong, do you ever feel like you're not that loved by God? Like he's probably tired of you. He's probably wishing you were stronger. I want to encourage you today to keep on taking up the cross even when you feel that weak. Again, this church is arguably the least strong but the most praised. So in the area of temptation, is there a place, is there a sin that is hounding you, that you are honestly just not that strong to fight against. That you wish that you were, that you wish it was gone, that you, that you have no ability to actually lift that cross yourself and battle against it. Even if you have little strength left because you've been fighting it for a long time, you have a shepherd who never gets tired of the sheep, even the ones that wander off often. Lean into his strength and not your own. Know that his favor still rests on you. Are you tired because you've been suffering for a long time? Suffering has a way of just slowly but surely removing our strength. And if you're in that place, I want to remind you that you have a shepherd who is compassionate even to the most struggling sheep, the sheep that need to be carried home the most often. 
That's the God that you have. The one who praises his people who know they have little strength. Again, Christ's encouragement to them is that he has adopted them as his own. That they've become adopted children of God. And this is what we see in verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, we talked about this before, so if you have uh, more questions about what on earth this title means, um, I can talk to you about it the, uh, after the gathering, or you can go back and listen to the second week of this series. Um, but to summarize it really quickly, it's not as though um, ethnic Jews in this area, religious Jews in this area, they didn't build a, a synagogue and then dedicate it to Satan. That's not what's going on here. All right? um, it's also not people who are lying about their heritage. These are people that are Jewish. They were born Jewish. So what on earth does this mean? It's pointing to the fact that it doesn't matter who you are, if you deny Christ, then you do not have God. You might think that you're God's people. You might think that you're worshiping Christ. You might think that you're good with him, that you're his child and that he loves you. But if you don't know Christ, if you don't trust in him, there's no other way to be on good terms with God. There's no other way for anyone in the whole world to be on good terms with God except Jesus Christ. Um, you can look more into this in John chapter 8. Jesus himself, um, in John chapter 8, says um, to a group of people in much the same language as he does here. Um, he explains the same thing to them, also in Romans 9 through 11. Um, one of the most amazing things is that this is a um, really important lesson for us to get as a modern church. Because the, the problem of these people is that they had presumed on their heritage and on the history that they were still acceptable to God based on you know, where they were born, who they were born to. The, the synagogue that they happened to go to on the weekends, that, those were all the things that they thought made them right with God. When in reality, it's not the children that are born by the flesh, right? It's children that are born by the promise of God, by the faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who are the children of God. They're bought by Christ's blood, and they're made alive by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ. Those are the people that are the true children of God, the true Israel, as Galatians says. So for us in a modern context, it's really easy for us, especially where we live. Like our, our nation as a whole might not really uh, claim the name of Christ, but certainly um, kind of where we live, it's certainly not uncommon to, to think that we're like in a Christian area of the world, sort of. Or maybe we came from a Christian family. Maybe we make sure we get to church on Christmas and, New, and uh, Easter, um, things like that. Maybe we get to church, you know, three times a month. Maybe we do most religious things, we pray pretty often, and we think that all of those things are what makes us a child of God. But God wants to be really clear with us, and this is really important. And I, I want to tell this to you because it is your soul hanging in the balance about this. It's nothing that you do that makes you right with God. It's not being born to great parents. It's not being, uh, being in church a certain amount of days of the week. You have to realize that your sin has set you against God, and yet at the same exact time, Jesus Christ is the way back to God. That he alone is the way to him. That he is the reconciliation that we need. And when we come to Christ, then, then we get to bear the title, Loved by God. 
I mean, Jesus tells them he's going to vindicate this church, essentially. He says, I'm going to prove it, that I have loved you, not them. I have loved you. To be God's child is only to come by faith in Jesus, trusting in him to reconcile us with the Father, and that alone makes us from a stranger to a child of God. This is the, uh, the gospel that we know, and this is the gospel that we need to trust in and to uh, keep safe and not let it be changed. And this is what the church in Philadelphia is doing. You see here in verse um, 10, You have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So this church, even though they don't have much strength, they are keeping the truth They're keeping the gospel truth. They're keeping the teaching of the apostles. They're not letting it be changed. They're not letting it be distorted. They're not letting uh, the city around them dictate to them what is true. They're keeping the truth pure. That word of um, steadfast endurance or patient endurance is a reference back to Revelation 1 verse 9. In Revelation 1 verse 9, John says that he is the brother. He's talking to the churches he's written these letters to. And he says, I'm your brother in three things. I'm your brother in the tribulation. I'm your brother in the kingdom. And and I am your brother in the the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So what he's talking about, I believe this is a reference to the gospel and the apostles' teaching that this church is held on to. Now, the next thing that's in here that's maybe a little weird to understand is as it gets into uh, this hour of trial and tribulation. There are a few ways to understand this. Um, There are faithful Christians that might understand this in different ways. Um, One way is to understand this as speaking of a um, a future judgment that's going to immediately precede Christ's second coming. It's one way that a lot of people understand this. Um, And I certainly get that, and I see that there's a lot of merit to it. Um, The way that we as elders at Maranatha understand this um, is that this is speaking um, specifically about the tribulation that Jesus is going to bring in the lifetime of this church. So this would center around the events that happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD. If you don't know uh, world history or ancient Middle Eastern history, in 70 AD, the entire city of Jerusalem was completely demolished, completely leveled. The temple, as Jesus predicted, was torn so that not one stone was standing upon another. And so when Jesus here says um, about an hour that is coming, and he says, I am coming soon, uh, we believe that this is speaking about um, a trial and a tribulation that wasn't thousands of years removed from them, but a trial and a tribulation that they were going to see. Now, it's going to happen in their time because he says that he's going to keep them from it. Now, if I told you that I was going to preserve you through a trial and a test and a tribulation, and I said, it's exactly 4,000 years from now, you would be like, that's great, but I don't think you have to worry about taking care of me. I won't be here at that point, right? And so when Jesus tells these people, there's an hour coming, I'm coming soon, and I'm going to preserve you, I'm going to keep you in this, then the most natural way that they would understand it, right, is, well, he's talking about something we're going to see. Otherwise, we don't really need his, his help for this, right? Um, so that's why we think that this is a reference to Jesus um, coming in judgment in Jerusalem in uh, 70 AD. I want to um, go forward here and think about the fact that he says, I will keep you from it. I don't think that Jesus is promising this church that they're just not going to see anything difficult. 
Um, I don't think that he says that they're just going to be somehow like a, a force field or a safety zone is going to be set up around them. They never have to wonder, worry about anything tough. Instead, I think that what Jesus is saying is that he's going to preserve this church through the hour of trial. He's promising this church that they're going to continue on, that he's going to keep their souls from being lost, even in the midst of trial and tribulation, even among the battle, the opposition, all the jerks, all the liars, all the people that are trying to get these Christians persecuted, put in prison, and killed. He says, I'm going to keep you. They will not be able to remove you from my hand, no matter what you see or what you run into. Even with their little strength, he says, hold fast to what you have, the obedience that you have. This church is obviously living obediently to Christ. They're obviously keeping not just the teaching pure, but their lives are obedient as well. And so Jesus is saying, hold fast to that. It may be difficult, but I'm going to keep you through it. And so he promises them perseverance. Um, he promises them perseverance. He says this in verse 12, the one who conquers or the one who overcomes, the one who trusts in me and obeys my word, I will make him a pillar of my God, a pillar in the temple of my God, sorry, and never shall he go out of it. Jesus is promising them perseverance. I want us to think again for a moment of the parallels between the two groups. We have the Christians here in Philadelphia, and then we have um, the Jewish people there in Philadelphia. And what's happening there? The Jewish people are telling them that they are the chosen people of God, right? They're the ones who get to go into the temple. They're the ones who have the presence of God. And instead, Jesus is being really clear, using this language on purpose to tell them, no, 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 you're the ones that are being brought into the true temple. You're the ones who are being brought into the true um, intimacy and relationship with God. He's not only going to open the door for them, he's also going to welcome them in and use them and build them as part of his temple. He's going to put them there in a way that they can never be removed from it. That Jesus is promising his people that they will never be lost. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, um, you look at verse 4. This is, this is what Christ is uh, affirming to them. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, this is speaking of Christ. Christ is the living stone who's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying to them, you're the people that are being made into my priesthood. You're the, you are the people that are truly the temple of of God, as you have trusted in me. Their salvation is secure, and he promises them this perseverance, although a better way to, to phrase it is probably preservation. Um, we believe that Christ, um, that followers of Christ are not lost, that when Jesus says that all who come to him he will save, uh, when Jesus says that no one can pluck us out of his hand, we believe those verses not because we believe in our own strength, in our own faith, to persevere and press on, and no matter what happens, we'll be so strong and faithful to God that he'll save us. Instead, we believe that we are weak, but that Christ is strong enough to preserve us. That Christ is strong enough to hold on to our faith when our faith is just barely about to let go. It's not about how tightly you hold on to Jesus, church. It is about how well and how surely he holds on to you. 
so that we can sit here and think um, on these promises of God that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and what we will dwell in the house of God forever. We will dwell in the house of God forever. Jesus says he will also write on them three names. He will write on them the name of his God. He will write on them the name of the new city of his God and his own new name. Jesus wants to be really clear. He's like hammering it home again that these are his people. What do you do when you adopt a child? You give them a new last name, right? You give them a new last name to signify the fact that they have a completely new identity, that they now belong to you as naturally as, you're, as um, someone that you would give birth to does. That they are so well identified as part of your family that there is no separation between you and that child. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to put my name, the name of God, on you to show everyone that you are my child. That he would never let go, just like a father would never let go of his own child, Jesus will never let go of them. He's being clear that his favor, his blessing, his love rests on his people that come to him by faith. And this is, this is amazing for us as we think about this fact that out of love, Christ would set his name upon us. And the reason it's amazing, or the reason that we forget that it's amazing, is because you and I probably think that we're very entitled to God's love. Like, if we've been walking with Christ for a while, or even if we just grow up in America, to be honest, we walk around thinking that we are pretty well entitled to God loving us. Kind of that he has to. Like, that's what we're owed from God. But by nature, you and I do not bear a name of beloved by God or child of God. By name, or by nature, we have a very different name. Because sin has broken each of us, not just as we fell in Adam, but even as we have sinned in our own lives and we followed after that sin. We might not think that we do this because we excuse our sins in a million ways today. We have lots of creative ways to make light of our sin and to ignore the fact that it actually sets us against God. We have a million creative ideas for that, but at the end of the day, we are children of wrath by nature, by the fact that we have sinned. And the wages of our sin is not life, it's not love, it's not favor, it's death. But our God looks at sinners in that position. He looks at us and he says, I will send my son to die for them. I will send my son to bear the cross that they deserve. I will put my wrath on him. I will put the name of sinner and rejected and stranger and alien and hostile. I'll put all those names on Jesus Christ on the cross so that instead, these sinners, these people can have the name child of God. They can have the name of God's favor, of God's blessing, of God's love rest upon them because of what Christ has done. And so for anyone today that trusts in Jesus Christ, turns from their sin, trusts in him as Savior and Lord, and you have a new name given to you. God's own name given to you. You have been adopted fully into the family of God. You have been brought into the household of of our Savior. You've been given a new identity, a new creation, a new destiny. The old is gone and the new has come. So for us today, as we go forward, as we try to live this out faithfully, I want you to hold fast. Like this church says, hold fast. Hold on in obedience to God, even when it's hard. 
because you trust him that what his word says is right. And not only be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word as well. And hold tightly to the truth and don't let it be distorted. Even if you have little strength, if you have just the smallest amount of strength left today, please hold on. Not by your own strength, but because Christ is there for you to lean on and to have the spiritual strength that you need. Remember the fact that the kingdom is open and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Remember that your God loves you. Your God loves you and he has given you his own name. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God. And that is what we are. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are good to us even though we don't deserve your love. And we pray that you would remind our hearts of the fact that we have been set free from sin. Lord, as Romans 6 says, Lord, we ask um, that you would help us no longer to live in that enslavement to sin, but to be set free. Lord, no matter what opposition we have in front of us, that we would cling to Christ and walk forward in obedience. Lord, we know that you are good and faithful. We thank you that we get to be called your children. And we get to be called your children. Lord, we give thanks for all these things in the name of Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.